Hello and welcome to the Leaders in Supply Chain podcast. I am your host, Radu Palamariu, Managing Director of Elkot Global. Our mission is to connect the supply chain ecosystem by bringing forward the most interesting leaders in the industry. I'm very happy to have with us today, Sami Nafak, who is the EVP and Chief Operations Officer at Arla Foods. Arla is the farmer-owned dairy cooperative with around 11,200 farmers in seven countries and which has to deal with 14 billion liters of milk produced by its farmers annually and basically is the fourth largest dairy company in the world with respect to milk volume. Sammy joined Arla Foods in January 2018 and he's leading a team of 13,000 colleagues based across more than 70 dairies, 120 distribution centers and operations in five continents. His responsibilities include Arla's manufacturing and logistics operations worldwide, the global procurement of goods and services, as well as the support functions like quality and food safety, health and sustainability. He has been working for the last 25 years in FMCG and has had leadership roles within businesses such as Unilever, Racket Beckinser, Danone and Estee Lauder prior to joining Arla. Semi, thanks a lot for making the time and it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thanks a lot, Radu. Thanks for having me on your podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm uh, I'm very uh, happy to have that discussion with you. Maybe let's let's start firstly with a little bit about yourself, because you've had a very interesting career in supply chain. You've have a, a versatile background. You've successfully transitioned across several FMCG brands, several geographies. You've worked on multiple continents. Maybe just tell us a little bit very shortly. I know it's 25 years, but tell us a little bit very shortly about that. Well, look, um, I'm, I'm uh, from a personal uh, standpoint, I have a multicultural background and, um, and I've been moving quite a lot with my uh, parents when I was a child. So I guess that created some uh, attraction for, uh, for moving and discovering uh, new stuff. Uh, having said that, I actually started pretty slow. Uh, I actually was in the same uh, location uh, for the first seven years of my career, but then it got accelerated. Um, I would say geographical mobility and functional mobility was always a wish. Uh, that is something I really wanted to do uh, by curiosity and also as a way to uh, discover uh, new uh, new things and learn new things. Uh, the, the corporate mobility and the changes uh, from various uh, companies was more um, a question of opportunities. Um, but in all cases, uh, you know, that uh, really proved to be great in terms of uh, learning, but also in terms of driving agility and adaptability. Um, I guess it's like everything. The more you practice and the more you learn from past mistakes, and I've made some mistakes when moving, um, the better you get at it. That's that's for sure. Um, and, and in terms of you as the CEO of Arla, I wanted to touch upon some mind-blowing numbers. I mean, you're, Arla is the fourth largest um, milk producer in the, or uh, processor in the world. You deal with something I was reading around 40 million liters of milk per day. Tell us a little bit about the scale and complexity of, of that supply chain. Yes, and and you've said a lot already in your uh, in your introduction, Radu. But you're right; it's it's about 14 billion liters of milk uh, on a yearly basis, and that's about 38 million per day. Um, and as you said, Arla is a cooperative, which means that we don't control uh, the demand on one side, but we don't control the supply on the other side neither. The the way the cooperative works is that we are obliged to take every drop of milk which is produced by every farmer 
on a daily basis, and we have to make the best of that milk, the best use, and create the most value out of that milk uh, for the farmers, which we then given back through the price of milk that we pay. So it is a pretty, um, it is a pretty large scale and and complex uh, organization. Um, as you're saying, uh, in my scope, I have procurements on both direct and uh, and indirect. Uh, that having said, that excludes milk due to the nature of the co-op. So, uh, you know, and like uh, other FMCGs, our game is not to pay the lowest price for the milk, but to pay the highest price for the milk. So it's a dedicated organization. Um, it's a large-scale manufacturing organization. Um, as you're saying, uh, as you said in your introduction, there's about 75 plants. 60 of them are in uh, Europe, mostly in Northern Europe. Uh, the rest is in our international uh, markets. Um, it's a large logistics and uh, transportation uh, organization. We have about 120 uh, distribution centers. We also have a huge fleet of trucks. We collect the milk. Uh, we transport goods between uh, our factories and our distribution centers. And we also transfer from the distribution centers to the customers. So it's a lot of kilometers that we're driving on an annual basis. And then, of course, there's all the support services, uh, which comes together with, uh, with operations, uh, planning, safety, uh, quality and food safety, engineering, et cetera, et cetera. I'd like to ask you just to drill a little bit deeper because you're set up um, on specifically the point of you looking to pay the most that you can because ultimately you work for your farmers actually um, and um, and the fact that you also don't you have to manage the complexity uh, and uncertainty of not controlling the demand what are some of the challenges of course there's some obvious ones that come with that and how do you even navigate it well it's <laughs> you're putting the finger on what is exactly the uh, the key challenge of that business which is um, and and you have to look at this in uh, in in three uh, in three horizon the the one the first one is the purely operational uh, horizon which is on almost real time at least on a daily basis you have to look at the flows of milk which is uh, which is coming through and decide you know how you're going to use your available assets and capacity to make the most value out of that milk. Um, and of course, there is, a, there is some forecasting on both the demand and the supply, but this is not a, a precise exercise. So there's always a, you know, some volatility and some uh, differences between the actual demand and the actual flow of milk you get versus what you had forecasted, which you have to be able to react very quickly. And where it gets very difficult is that, of course, you can do this by having a huge amount of uh, available capacity, but that is very costly. And there is not a high margin business. So you want to reduce that available capacity to minimum so that it doesn't cost you too much. But you want to have enough to be able to manage that daily volatility that you have. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's a pretty complex exercise. And then on the, on the tactical and strategic horizon, it's all about you know, making some bets about where do you see the demand evolving? Where do you see the consumers moving to? Where do you see the markets, especially on the commodity, on the commodity side of things, moving to? and therefore investing in the right capacity in the right assets at the right time, bearing in mind that it takes, um, you know, which we, if we take the, uh, the investments we're going to make on mozzarella, um, which I know you're going to come back to, uh, it takes 18 to 24 months before, be, be, between the time you decide to go for something and the time you get that capacity available. Um, so, you know, you have to be pretty forward looking. Um, and, and again, you can't afford to get it wrong because if you get it wrong, this becomes very quickly extremely costly. 
spilled milk, uh, literally, it becomes spilled milk. Um, <laughs> so I know, I know. You mentioned that, uh, and I was, um, I was sharing before we we went online um, that that I'm going to ask you. You mentioned that in the article that you published on LinkedIn, the the cost of spilled milk and the the cost of wasting. Um, uh, and I know that you have a very interesting case study, and I wanted maybe you can share it with our listeners as well. I think you already have some very tangible results in terms of the um, um, savings that you've managed to pull out of uh, out of driving ops excellence and efficiencies in the in the in your supply chain. So maybe we can touch upon that now. Yeah, if you um, if you want. So um, as I said, this is a, a pretty low margin uh, business, uh, and and we play on a number of segments. Um, you know, we do have a branded business, uh, which by essence is more profitable. But we also have uh, a lot of private label business, and also some commodity businesses, and and those are pretty thin on the margin. So we we can't afford to have a lot of inefficiencies and ineffectiveness, um, and as as a result, we are. Uh, you know, pretty relentless in in trying to uh, identify and eradicate all sources of waste uh, that we can have, and that's you know material waste, milk waste, uh, but also product waste, energy waste, efficiency waste. Um, you can name it as much as as you want. Uh, and the approach we're taking uh, is is always the same, and that's what I'm going through in that uh, in that article in LinkedIn. And the first step is really to understand at the right granularity where do we waste and why do we waste um, and that's easy said but that's not easy done especially when you have a large-scale and pretty complex operation with a lot of plants and within each plant a lot of processes and technologies um, and the way we've been doing this is really through leveraging uh, digital capabilities data, big data, and analytics. So, you know, we had to create uh, an architecture of IoT where we could get the information almost real time on all the points where we believe we were wasting, uh, where we're creating waste. And then we had to create the IoT infrastructure to be able to collect that data, structure it, uniformize it, and then analyze it to drive action. So that's been, a, that's been a pretty intensive work we've been going through over the last uh, 18 to, uh, to 24 months, which is really paying off um, as, we're, as we're speaking. Uh, the second uh, pillar that we've been actively working on is really effective collaboration uh, between uh, the various uh, entities in the business so that we have a better uh, both forecasting but also responsiveness. So how do we work better between our commercial friends who are planning the demand and dealing with the customers on the, on the markets and um, our uh, milk friends who are dealing with the flow of milk and, and forecasting uh, and managing you know, what's happening on the farmer side so that we try to be as proactive and as responsive as possible in managing the unforeseen and the volatility on both demand and supply. And the last thing which you alluded to is really to work on empowerment and, and train and give new tools to the people uh, on the shop floor, but also to give them the power to take the right decisions at the shortest interval, uh, time interval possible. So a lot of work really in training, driving the capabilities and empowering people on the shop floor uh, to drive action uh, real time. I want to probe a little bit on this last point because it's ultimately is the crux of most, I mean, it's the crux of all changes. It's, it's the people and it's the mindset that, <laughs> that is usually the, the, the hardest change. It's not the technology. Technology is available, but, uh, you know, people need to use it and need to use it well. 
how can you give us some examples of, of how how did you manage to do that in Arla? How would you drive it? Do you have certain I don't know, uh, you in, you encourage people to fail, you you do weekly reviews. I don't know. Is there something practical, tangible that you could share with our listeners of how you inculcate that culture of um, ownership and, 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 and basically responsibility? Yeah, so I would, uh, you know, I would articulate this uh, around three main, uh, three main areas. And that's something that we call the line-centric organization, the, uh, the LCO. Um, in Alafuz and something we've been working on together with the uh, Boston Consulting Group, um, and the three the three main um, components of it is first to put the line or the shop floor back at the center of the attention, and and that is related to servant leadership. So we had to change a bit the uh, the mindsets uh, in our operations where. The people in the lines or in the uh, in the warehouse shop floor are not there to serve others to achieve their objective. It's the other way around. So the shop floor is the center of the attention, and everything which is gravitating around it is there to serve them. And that should be the obsession. And and that seems obvious, but at least in the case of Ala, this was quite a paradigm change. <laughs> where you know guys what you do on your processes and your admin stuff and your uh, fancy stuff that you like working on etc forget about it as long as it doesn't help and support the people who are driving the day-to-day hour by hour operation on the shop floor in both uh, in both factories and um, and uh, logistics operation so that's that's the first point and that's more a kind of mindset and leadership change the second thing was to recreate as I said, a line-centric organization where we created cells uh, using, uh, you know, putting together operators, but also maintenance uh, technicians, which we pulled out of their offices and put directly on the line to work in a team with the operators, people working on continuous improvements, people working on the quality, and those, this little group owns an asset. So they can own a line or a couple of lines or an area in a, in a warehouse, and they're responsible, accountable, and empowered to drive the performance on the area that they're responsible for. So you really give the power back to the shop floor and you empower them and of course you train them and you give them new tools to be able to succeed in, in, that, uh, in that quest. And the last thing I would say is that we've reduced the, uh, the, uh, the, the time interval where we're saying everything that can be resolved by this team that I've just uh, mentioned in, uh, in their shift has to be resolved there without any kind of escalation, reporting, whatever, to anybody else. So what you can fix and what you can sort in your time interval, you do so, and you're fully empowered and trained to do so. And only what goes beyond the time interval of a shift has to be escalated. And then we do the same on the daily base, and then we do the same on the weekly base, etc. So we move from everything has to be reported out to management and then that goes into the Pareto and then you only scratch the surface of the top problems but you don't fix the immense majority of the problems to you fix everything in different time intervals. And again, that seems to be pretty easy to understand conceptually. In ways of working, it's quite a radical change, but that is very, very powerful. Thanks for sharing. I, I mean, I could not agree more. And I mean, it's not, uh, especially the point with the, um, giving the empowerment to the people of, of, of solving things by themselves. Uh, yeah, fundamentally, it sounds like a very uh, obvious thing to do, but but in actual fact, when, when those people who are used to 
uh, let's say, wait for the decisions to be made at management level, and maybe the management, uh, like you said, the other mindset changes to empower the shop floor and put it at the center versus the management um, using them as, as, you know, kind of a tool. It's, it's big shifts, and I would say that most companies or a lot of companies, a lot of manufacturing companies don't have yet to make that shift. In some ways, it's kind of like companies forgetting to put the consumer at the center of what they do and, and being getting too lost at the at the level of internal politics which also happens a lot and I'm sure your your friends at, at BCG that you use can attest to that that's why they have a lot of business because we, we tend to forget the fundamentals so I'm very happy that you shared this very practical um, uh, practical example and I'm pretty sure it wasn't easy for you but but happy that it worked out and I want to now go to that point where, where you, which you brought, um, brought up um, briefly on the mozzarella plant. I think it's, it's in Branderup. Uh, it's a big investment for you. It's, it's close to 90 million uh, US dollars that, that you made there. Um, and I wanted to, to, to go a little bit deeper. What's the long-term strategy? Why is this important to, the, to RLI as a company? And how do you think it at the, at the bigger picture? Yes, and look, this is a, a perfect example of what I was referring to before, where we have to make some uh, strategic decisions on where do we believe, what do we bet on, and where do we believe value for the milk is going to be created in the future. Um, so in, in the case of mozzarella, actually, it was, uh, it was pretty simple. Um, if you look at the mozzarella markets, the global demand is booming. Uh, and that's primarily driven by the pizza market. Pizza is using 95% of the mozzarella, which is produced uh, worldwide. And, um, and that uh, pizza market is booming, especially in the emerging markets. Uh, but even if you look at Europe, it expected, it's expected to grow double digits in the next three years. So there is a huge demand uh, growth on, uh, on mozzarella uh, worldwide. And at the same time, and even though uh, you know, we have competitors who have uh, announced uh, also investments in mozzarella recently, uh, Glambia in Ireland and, uh, and Fonterra and a couple of uh, areas, to, to name just a few, we know that even with these investments, the global, the global capacity is not going to be sufficient to support the expected growth. Um, so, you know, from, from, a, from a demand versus capacity standpoint, the picture is or seems to be pretty clear. And on top, uh, mozzarella is really an area, well, cheese in general and mozzarella in particular is an area where we do believe we have real expertise uh, and, and some pretty unique products. So, you know, some strong R&D and production know-how, some pretty unique products that we can offer to, uh, to the customers and which we know are highly appreciated. So when you put the two together uh, and, uh, and considering that our current assets on mozzarella have been completely overutilized already, it was a pretty, uh, you know, a pretty straightforward decision. I didn't. I didn't know this. I never. I never thought about this. So definitely, there's more. There's more people eating pizza. That's a, that's a good thing. I also like pizza, uh, but definitely, definitely good for uh, good for you. I know also that you have some pretty um, big relocation projects that are being um, being uh, done at the moment. So you have a couple of changes of. Uh, cream production lines. Um, you also are shifting from uh, from your site in Saudi Arabia. I think you have a site in Riyadh uh, to a new site that you acquired, which is located in Bahrain. These are not easy to do, especially, I mean, in any context, but okay, especially also in, in, in the context of, uh, of the product that you have, which is, uh, of course, you, you need to, to take into account uh, safety and, and, and regulation and health and, and a lot of other criteria. So usually when you do such a massive relocations, 
what are some of the biggest challenges that you need to you need to take into account and to make it successful? Uh, yeah, it's a very good question. So uh, before I answer the question, just to give maybe a bit of background to the uh, to the audience, the, the reason why we're doing those uh, transfers is because we've uh, we've acquired recently um, a uh, a new factory in uh, in Bahrain, which we bought uh, from Mondelez. Um, and uh, and that factory already has some volumes which are uh, under the craft license that we also keep. Um, but uh, the Middle East is a, is a very big market for us, and uh, and currently, uh, until we had uh, purchased that uh, that new operation, we were shipping about eighty percent of the product out of uh, out of Denmark, out of two factories in Denmark, uh, one located in Kefa and the other one is uh, located in Bislu. Uh, and a bit, uh, the rest was coming from uh, the plant in Saudi that you mentioned uh, in in Dania. So you know, having a new state-of-the-art operation located locally was a no-brainer in terms of uh, proximity, agility, re- reactivity, responsiveness, etc. Uh, so that's why we uh, we, we decided uh, to do the pretty obvious, which was to relocate uh, the volumes that we currently produce in uh, in Denmark to that new uh, new plant in uh, in Bahrain having said that um, as you're saying this is um, you know the, the, the principle is pretty straightforward uh, doing it uh, correctly is uh, is not that straightforward um, so to your question I um, when I thought about it um, there are four main points that came uh, that came to my mind the first one is is obviously to keep the product um, organoleptic consistency right you're, you're dealing with food uh, you know that uh, people uh, are very much uh, attached to a given taste and, con- and, and consistency and uh, an experience and of course, when you move from one factory to another factory, and when you start changing a bit the process, even though it might be similar, it's never exactly the same. And then you're going to use different materials because you're going to source materials, materials locally instead of sourcing them in Europe. All of that can create some change in the in the customer experience and in the consumer experience. And that we have to minimize because clearly we want to have a product which is as close as possible as possible to what people are used to and to what they like. So that's the first challenge. Uh, of course, the second one is during that transition, you want to keep customer service at the highest level and you don't want to have any disruption. So how do you make sure in the whole transition process that this is as smooth as possible, keeping in mind that you can't have it too long or too secure, otherwise it costs you too much. So where, where do you put the trigger between making it uh, efficient and effective without taking risk on customer service would be a second uh, second challenge. Uh, the third one is, of course, that plant in uh, in Manama that we've acquired is going to be a huge change for them. Uh, we're going to be uh, doubling, well, actually, more than doubling, uh, doubling to begin with, but that plant currently produces about 25,000 tons and is going to get to 100,000 tons uh, in the next uh, four years, let's say. So we're going to quadruple uh, production in the next uh, few years. Uh, that's a massive change. But that plant is producing. It's not like a green field. So we have to implement those changes and install all these new equipments and recruit all the new labor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, without disrupting the current operation, which is 
again, a, a significant challenge. And, and last but not least, uh, obviously, uh, this comes uh, with some implications for the size in Denmark, uh, who will see a significant amount of volumes moving out. So we have to very carefully and, and sensitively uh, manage the consequences uh, on that side of the, uh, of the pond. Mm. Yeah, that's that's massive. So four times more. That that is indeed mind blowing numbers from twenty five thousand tons to to one hundred thousand tons, and I, that that gets me to the next question because I'm actually curious, and I think I'm speaking for a lot of other people in the audience. Um, you have a you have an incredibly strong presence in the Middle East uh, MENA region, right? Middle East and Africa region. So that's your largest market outside of Europe. How how did that come about? And and it's almost like you know it's prompting into my mind. I'll ask you directly. Why do you have such a strong share of the market there? Yeah, it's it's, it's an interesting one. Uh, and and the uh, and the main reason is history. To be uh, to be honest, but you're right. Uh, Middle East, uh, Middle East and North Africa is our largest international market. Uh, you know, it's about seven hundred million euros of uh, turnover uh, these days. And it's still growing very fast. Um, and that is very critical to the business because it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a fast-growing business, but it's also a, a fairly profitable business. The reason being that most of the product we sell in the Middle East are branded. And obviously, uh, the margins on branded products are better than uh, on, uh, on private label or, or commodities. Now, uh, back to your question. We actually... Uh, ALA started its presence in the Middle East a long, long time ago. It started, uh, believe, believe it or not, in the 1950s with the import of uh, Lopak, the butter brand. Mm. Uh, why, why did somebody uh, start uh, importing Lopak in the, in the Middle East, in Saudi, in the 50s? I don't exactly know. Uh, but there is a long track record of history. And then Dania Foods, our uh, subsidiary in, uh, in uh, Saudi, was actually established in 77, uh, so almost 50 years ago. Um, and that strong history of presence uh, means that we have a strong knowledge of the markets, uh, strong knowledge of the players, uh, strong stand in the business community, uh, and that clearly helps a lot. Uh, those markets are very specific. You need to understand how they work. You need to understand the consumers. You need to understand the customers. You need to understand how business is conducted. And, and I think we have all of that. Um, and that translates in having a very strong product portfolio, both in terms of relevance and, and quality, uh, which is driving uh, you know the growth we're still experiencing. Mm. I want to come back a little bit, Sammy, to um, um, to the two points that you mentioned that that uh, that mattered a lot in terms of the results you've gotten so far. Which was point number one was increasing the visibility and the quality of insights that you got from the data um, uh, around your your supply chain and production and manufacturing. And the point number two, which was a better alignment between supply and demand. Right. So um, I wanted to link that those two points also and ask you: Did you use certain tech innovations in particular that helped you? get to those two points better was there you mentioned iot were there some were there some specific uh, tech in supply chain innovations that you used that you could mention uh, yeah, so I, w I would mention quite a few. Uh, we did, uh, and we're still, uh, because that, that's obviously uh, a never-ending uh, 
program, but uh, we did invest uh, quite heavily in IoT and in uh, in process controls, uh, from which we could uh, we could gather uh, data. Uh, we did invest a lot in creating a data hub. Uh, where we could collect and uh, and not only collect but also uh, harmonize uh, data, uh, and then we did invest in a number of analytical tools uh, whereby we could use this data and convert it into something we could use to drive action. So quite some work there. Uh, a lot of investment also in automation um, and uh, you know uh, stuff like uh, machinery and uh, robotics is is nothing new, but we also did invest a lot in uh, in AGVs in automated guided vehicles. Uh, so uh, if you uh, if you walk uh, in uh, one of our factories these days, you'd hardly see, especially in the main ones, you'd hardly see any material movements or pallet movements through people or through uh, mm. manual forklift trucks. You see a lot of AGVs uh, running across the whole factories, uh, driving and bringing materials to the lines and taking the finished goods out of the lines and uh, putting them into racks and taking them in the racks and, and uh, driving them to the, uh, to, the loading, uh, to the loading bay. So quite a lot of uh, investment in, uh, in automatizing the flow of, of goods. Um, we're also, and this is more exploratory, but we, we're doing quite a lot of work into looking at uh, uh, automation in uh, logistics. Um, and I would, um, you know, I would look at it in two ways. Uh, one is uh, having, we've invested in uh, systems for having a, a continuous optimization of routing to minimize the number of kilometers that we run. We also have uh, invested in some systems to optimize the fill rate of the trucks. And we're looking at, uh, as anybody else, right? So we're looking at uh, automatized trucks uh, and self-driving trucks. Uh, not something we're yet piloting, but something we're working on with a, uh, with a number of truck suppliers. The one thing that we're piloting in uh, cities, um, especially in Copenhagen, is electrical trucks instead of uh, fossil fuel driven trucks. So a pretty wide range of, uh, you know, uh, investment in, uh, in new techs and, uh, and new tools. Mm. And, and that brings me to the question around e-commerce because it's changing, basically consumer behavior is changing, demand behavior is changing pretty much everything actually. And it's just continues to grow. And we've had Black Friday, we've had the Alibaba Singles Day, and it's again blown all records this year. How is that uh, that uh, changing your business in, in if in any way? How is the e-commerce challenge uh, channel affecting Arla? Uh, to be honest, to date, not hugely, and this is for two reasons. The first one is that Arla is not uh, is not having any uh, business to consumer di direct to consumer business, right? It's uh, we do e-com, but we do e-com through retailers through the retail.com. Uh, websites. Um, and the second reason is that in the food industry, uh, e-com is still pretty marginal. Um, I think uh, if I'm uh, not wrong, uh, it's about 3% uh, of our turnover uh, through, uh, through e-com, through re retailers. Uh, UK being the biggest market where it's close to 10%. But it's still, it's still a, a, a pretty small portion. Having said that, you're right, e-com comes with, even when it goes through retailers, it comes with a number of challenges in terms of uh, volatility and, uh, and complexity. 
Uh, and and uh, if you bear in mind that a lot of our products are fresh and have a very short shelf life, this is something which uh, you know we, we can only deal deal with through a better responsiveness. We can't simply because of short shelf life, we can't build up huge inventories to cover for any unexpected demand uh, from from ecom. So it's all about being more uh, more agile and more responsive. Mm. Moving the discussion a little bit to your to the human side and to the to the talent side and and basically to selecting people and um, and picking the right and picking the winning teams, are there certain principles that you follow when you're choosing and and selecting and retaining or trying to retain your your top talent in your leadership teams? Yeah, that's uh, that's a very interesting question. So uh, you know, if if I'm if I'm looking at the way I uh, or what I'm looking for when I'm recruiting a, a new leader or the way I assess uh, people that I have in my uh, in my organization, um, the first thing I would uh, I would look at is the is the mindset. Um, has the person the person got the right mindset in terms of can do and will do in terms of driving solutions rather than just raising problems in terms of looking at new ways and new opportunities rather than just looking at what's been done in the past and the way we've been working in the past and somebody who's a self-starter so you know mindset to me is very important because this is what's going to drive the rest uh, the, the rest of the of the work. Uh, the second thing I'm looking at is is the ability to embrace and drive change, uh, and this is about being able to engage the organization, to work effectively with the people, to set the direction, and to get the organization behind the direction, uh, driving the sense of purpose, uh, driving the sense of priority, etc. So is that person able to drive change, but not as a person, but across his organization with his people? Um, because you know it's not very effective to have a leader running in front and then no one behind him. Um, <laughs> that's not a leader. Yeah, that's taking a walk. <laughs> exactly. So I'm, 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 I don't need I don't need experts. We have a lot of expertise in the organization from a technical standpoint and also from a conceptual standpoint. We really need you know what we need is people who can get the other the organization with them uh, in the right uh, in the right direction. Um, and as uh, you know, related to this, uh, we we do need people who are people focused, and 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 people focused. <laughs> you know, this is always uh, this is always a bit tricky because uh, you know if you have to drive changes and if you have to drive improvements, uh, it always comes with a bit of tension. So uh, you know, I'm not looking for people who want to be friends with everyone, but I wanna I want you know I'm I'm looking for people who can have the right balance between pushing and pulling. Who are, who are obsessed with continuously developing their organization, their people, and, and who are effective in communicating and engaging. Uh, you know, communication is more and more a, a, a critical uh, capability that we need to have in leaders. Um, if you don't communicate properly, you don't create the sense of engagement, purpose, and, and, and urgency that you need, and therefore you don't get people behind you, and therefore you get stuck pretty quickly. Uh, so that ability to listen and to communicate both ways, which is, you know, <laughs> one way is to give your message, but the other way is to listen to what the people have to say and to take into consideration is quite is quite critical. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last one I would mention is that, uh, you know, I, I'm always looking for people who have, who have a good balance between a, a strategic mindset, so who can see 
not just today and tomorrow, but also the day beyond tomorrow and who can drive the direction for the next few years whilst having a, 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 a pretty high operational acumen because at the end of the day, you know, we have to, uh, we have to execute flawlessly and we have to deliver the day-to-day performance. Mm. And a very personal question to you because you've managed successfully to transition. So you were, you were 10 years in Unilever, then you went to Rekit Beckenser uh, for five years, then you were in Danone five years, then you were in Estee Lauder, which is, well, I mean, Danone is quite a different business than, than Rekit Beckenser. Well, it is FMCG, but it's not quite the same. Then Estee Lauder obviously is more cosmetics. Now Arla, obviously a little bit different. How did you, I mean, are there certain principles when you made these changes? Because it's never easy to transition and, and, uh, and you've done it successfully. Are there certain principles that you follow to help you navigate to a new company, to, to form a new team and to adapt and, and, and make it successfully? Yes, I think there are some differences and there are some commonalities. So, uh, and, and you know, it's it's a very wide question, and we could so we could spend a lot of time on it. But uh, if if I'm trying to uh, to summarize it, it's a question of uh, I think building on your past experiences, um, successes, but also failures. And I've not always been successful. Uh, I've I've had some uh, I've made some mistakes and I had some failures. And, uh, and you have to learn from them. Uh, so, you know, using your past experience and looking at what is, what is common and what you can leverage in a new, uh, in a new business, in a new context, together with the, uh, the ability to, uh, to learn and to adapt uh, to the new circumstances. So you, when you get in a, new, uh, in a new industry or in a new business, you have to understand how this works, uh, how this works in terms of the way the business is run, how it works in terms of the way the industry is, is being, uh, you know, the playing field, but also the, the internal culture. So, you know, what make people tick, what's the history, what happened in the past, what's the local culture, et cetera, et cetera. And very clearly, you know, uh, when you move from, uh, uh, from an American uh, listed company, which is still uh, run pretty much as a family business, i.e. is the loader to a Scandinavian dairy cooperative, you're in a completely different play field. And you have to take, take the time to understand this and to understand, you know, again, what you can leverage and, and what are the past stuff that you can uh, play with and what is the new stuff that you have to adapt to and to learn. Mm, for sure. Um, final question from me, Sammy. Looking back on your career, which has been a, a long and very successful one, and if you were to share a couple of pieces of advice that you found most, um, most useful to you, maybe from your mentors or along the way, principles that you followed, what would that be? I, I would say, I mean, the, the first one that comes to my mind is keep learning. Um, it's, it's always, you know, uh, things change. First, uh, you know, you, you might move from in different environments, as, uh, as we just said, and you have, to, uh, you have to be able to learn and to adapt. And the world is changing, and the world is changing super fast. So the way, um, irrespectively of the industry, the way we run supply chain today is very different from what it was 10 years ago, even you know, five years ago, and with the, you know, the ongoing digital revolution is going to change again very fast. So I'm pretty sure that you know, uh, the way we're going to be operating in three to five years is going to be very different from the way we operate today. Um, and if you want to be uh, staying in the game and if you don't want to be uh, getting into, uh, into lagging, then you have to constantly learn and adapt uh, to this new reality. And you have to have the willingness and the mental agility to, uh, to be doing so. 
so that would be my first piece of advice. Uh, be curious uh, would be the second one, and that's also related to learning, right? Be curious about what's happening, not only in your business, not only in your company, not only in your industry, but beyond this. Uh, because there might be a lot of good stuff uh, which uh, which uh, can be applicable to uh, to what you're doing. So, look outside, connect, network, uh, read, uh, be open uh, to the world, and uh, and be curious. Um, and the last one is, and that's pretty much what I try to do in my career. <laughs> is try to broaden your experience and the sooner you do it, the better. So, uh, you know, try to broaden your experience functionally, uh, discovering new fields uh, and, and new areas, broaden it uh, geographically uh, because it's a fantastic uh, experience and it's a, it's, a, it's a fantastic learning to go abroad and be, you know, confronted with different ways of working in different culture. Um, and I would also advise to uh, to go from uh, you know to uh, to go uh, in different companies because uh, you experience different operating models and different corporate culture, which also build your overall uh, you know um, skill set and and adaptability. Thanks for sharing all of all of very valuable and and valid points. I mean. Much appreciate um, much appreciate all the examples and um, and case studies and very good. Um, uh, sharing session that we had today. Um, good luck in the next projects. Good luck with the relocation projects as well. Uh, good luck with the mozzarella plant, and and looking forward to to buying some of the uh, some more of the Arla product uh, uh, to use it on my own pizza. And uh, it's been a pleasure to have you with us today, Sam. Yeah, thank you very much uh, for uh, for your interview, Radu. It's been a, it's been a very enjoyable time from my uh, from my perspective. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to go to www.elcodglobal and click the podcast button for all the show notes of the interview. Also, subscribe to our mailing list to get our latest updates first. If you're listening through a streaming platform like iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, we would appreciate a kind review. Five star works best to keep us going and our production team happy. And of course, share it with your friends. I'm most active on LinkedIn, so do feel free to follow me. And if you have any suggestions on what, what to do and who to invite next, don't hesitate to drop me a note. And if you're looking to hire top executives in supply chain or transform your business, of course, contact us as well to find out how we can help.